All right, guys, good to see all of you. Hope you're doing well. We're in Second Samuel, our study of uh, David. As you know, really, the second uh, book of Samuel is all about David's monarchy. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, when it was in those notes, the introductory paragraphs in your packet that we sent you. But anyway, this is the high watermark of Israel's history. This is their golden age. David uh, and his then son Solomon, which we will not cover in this class, but um, it's amazing. And as I mentioned to you as well, and this is always exciting to me because there's constantly being more and more of this found. Archaeological digs and excavations just keep producing more and more evidence of the significance of David at this time uh, in, in all kinds of digs, whether you're in Assyria, whether you're in uh, where the Moabites were, the Ammonites were, or even in some of the Philistine area, which now is shut down because of the Gaza War. Archaeology is proving a lot of what we know about David and his monarchy. As you know, uh, Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead. On Mount Gilboa, they died, and David has lamented that. Read that quite marvelous lamentation where he he gives how the mighty are fallen is the theme of that, and then how he is uh, dealing in chapter two with a, a revolt, a civil war. One of Saul's sons, largely energized by Abner, who's the military commander, carry over from Saul, is trying to elevate Ishbosheth who is the only real surviving son of Saul to king. And he has made his capital up in Mahanaim. And if you, on page 12 of your note packet, if you're interested, there's a really fine map of this whole period. And Mahanaim is on the east side of the Jordan River in what today would be close to the Bolan Heights, that area, the northern part of Jordan, if you will. Now, chapter 3 is the... The, the, the Battle of Gibeon is what it's called. It's kind of a draw. No, nobody really wins that battle. The, the champions, uh, that little exercise they try at the well of Gibeon, uh, David's forces win that, but then they chase after Abner, and Abner kills Joab's brother. And now what's going to happen? Because the, the, the issue is, will Isbosheth, I know that's a crazy name, the surviving son of Saul, will he succeed as the king of the northern part of Israel, challenging the monarchy of David in the south, his capitals in Hebron, as you remember? Well, chapter 3 is going to answer that question for us. And the focus in the first part of chapter 3 is on Abner. Remember, he is the military commander. He's a carryover from Saul's reign. He's kind of the, I, I think I can give him that title, kind of the commander-in-chief of Ishbosheth's kingdom. <clears throat> There was a long war. I'm in verse 1 now. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. That's the civil war. Abner, Ishbosheth versus Joab and David. It goes on for almost two years. But notice the second part of verse 1. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. So, I mean, that's very simple. Two statements. (laughs) But you can see that it, David is obviously going to win this civil war and obviously going to be the champion of Israel. Now, what the author does, it's, it's kind of, it almost seems out of place, but I don't think it is. I'll tell you why in a minute. But in verses 2, 3, and 4, and into 5, he summarizes David's children. <laughs> and sons were born to David at Hebron. Now remember that his his he's now in Judah. He's been recognized the capital uh, as the king. His capital is in Hebron, which is the main city in Judah at that time. His firstborn was Amnon. Now this is going. He's we're introduced to these names in literature. You would call this a walk on, because the author is going to introduce us to a whole bunch of individuals that are going to be really important later in David's reign. So Amnon is his firstborn, of Ahinoam of Jezreel. His son, his second, Chiliab of Abigail, the wife of Nabal of Carmel. We know almost nothing about that, that boy. We, he won't see him again in any major. The third is Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Tamar, king of Geshur. Now that's on you. We, we, all of a sudden, 
This, this lady comes out of the situation, but what is really important is Absalom. So Amnon, Absalom. The fourth is Adonijah. He will be important. The fifth, Shephatiah, the, the son of Abiatah. We don't know anything about him. Ithraim of Egla, we don't know anything about him. But we see three of the sons that you're going to see again and again and again. In fact, this gets later into the book. Absalom is going to lead a revolt against his father. We'll be talking about that. But those names, to walk on. We know just these names. Don't forget them. They'll be on the quiz next week, and you must spell them correctly. These were born to David in Hebron. So David is king. He'll be king in Hebron for seven and a half years until he switches to Jerusalem. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Now, verse 6, we get back to the civil war between the house of Saul led by Isbosheth and David. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. So all that is me, all that means is that really the power behind the house of Saul challenging the house of David is not Isbosheth, it's Abner, the military commander. Now, because he is becoming more and more powerful and more and more influential, he does something which is very strange and weird in our culture, but in the culture of the ancient Near Eastern world, was a significant sign of challenging Isbosheth. So what does he do? Verse 7, now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of A. Of and Isbosheth said to Abner, why have you gone into my father's concubine? Okay, now this, this is weird. You and I have no context for understanding like this. But if you want to assert and challenge the power of a leader, in this case, Isbosheth has been declared king of the north, you sleep with one of his wives. Declaring by that act, I am the successor to Saul, not you. I mean, you and I have just no context for anything like that. And I'm very thankful we don't. But that's not how leadership succession occurs in the United States or in Western civilization or as far as I know, virtually anywhere in the world. But in the ancient Near Eastern world, that was a way of challenging someone's leadership and asserting, I am the real successor. So by, by Abner going in and sleeping with Rispa, one of Saul's remaining concubines, he's challenging Isbosheth. And Isbosheth understands what he's doing, because what did he just ask him? Why did you just do that? Are you with me? I mean, that, it's bizarre. Kind of like the animal kingdom. Well, it is. I mean, it's, it's a very animalistic act challenging a leader and, in effect, asserting, I'm the new leader. What are you going to do about it? And that's exactly what Abner's doing here. Do the concubines have any voice in this? They- no, heavens no. Heavens no, oh, yeah. It's somewhat like some parts of the world today, women were regarded as an object. They were an object to satisfy the whims of a man. They were used by men. And if you think misogyny is bad in the United States, you should see misogyny in the ancient Eastern. You know what I mean. Misogyny, it's a, people are using that word, and some people don't know what it means, but it's, you, you, you objectify women, and you use them as just an object. And that's what's going on here. No, women have no say in this. So then verse 8, so Abner would, you would think, oh, Abner's going to say, I'm sorry, Esbosheth, I shouldn't have done that. That's not what he says. Look what he, look what he does. Abner was very angry over the words of Isbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers, to his friends, that have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. And he used that phrase, steadfast love. That's chesed. That's chesed. We talked about that. That's that loyal love. Now, in a way, what Abner is saying there, is not really true. But it is true in the sense that he's been loyal to the house of Saul. But he, in effect, is challenging Isbosheth. So, verse 9, look at what he says now. 
God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David or Rishon over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Okay, now do you understand what he just said this person? I'm switching my loyalty from you to David. That's what he just said. And I mean, notice the language. It's covenant language. May the Lord do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul to the throne of David. Ishbosheth, I'm transferring my loyalty to David. And obviously, verse 11, and Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. It's like, duh, of course he would. So, I mean, this is a, this is a, a it's, it's, it's bizarre for you and me. It's so, we have absolutely no reference point for it. But because of what Abner did with this concubine and because of how Ishbosheth responded, Abner is defending himself. Abner is asserting himself. Okay, and I'm just switching loyalty to David. And that is exactly what he's going to do. So, well, I'll save that question for a minute. Okay, you're with me? Let's look at what happens. I'm trying to get you to talk so I can sip coffee, but none of you are taking the bait. So I'm just going to stop and sip some coffee. So verse 12, And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. That's a remarkable offer. I will deliver to you the ten kingdoms of the north. I will deliver to you the ten tribes of the north. I will transfer loyalty from Saul to you. What's the price? And he said, good. Now, this is the he is David, David responding to Abner. And so David said, good. I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you that you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Who's Michal? David's wife. wife. You go back to 1 Samuel chapter 18. David had paid the bride price for Michal, Saul's daughter. He had married her. He had never divorced her. Now, why would David insist on that? What he's really saying is, I love your idea, Abner. I want to unify all the tribes together. But there's one price to that, what you're offering. I want you to restore my first wife to me, Saul's daughter. Two things. First of all, this would be very pleasing to the tribe of Benjamin because Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. And that would be bringing back Saul's daughter from the northern kingdom, which is where she was living, back to the area where David lives in Hebron. He's trying to link Benjamin to Judah again, linking these two tribes together. This will create the bridge between these two tribes because the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin were at odds because David is from Judah, Saul was from, from Benjamin. So are you with me, Jenna Stone? The very shrewd move on David's part. Jim. But secondly, it Jim. also indicates... Jim. Hello. Yes. Isn't, isn't that the, the one that he worked for and, but didn't want? That's he, correct. He got, he got tricked into getting her, as I recall. She was not the That's, one he really wanted. Well, no, no, that that was, there was an earlier wife that that um, Saul had said, I'm going to give her to you, but to get back at David, he gave her to another man. 
But then Michelle, who was, this is when he paid the bride price for her, he married her. She lied for David. She hid David and allowed David to escape. Then Saul, as punishment for that, gave her to another man. So, I mean, if you go back to chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, all that. So, what, what David. Thank you. David, David really cared about her. I mean, it's hard because he has so many other wives, right? We just read about several of them in the previous little paragraph there. But David, it's a diplomatic to link Benjamin tighter to, to, to Judah, but also to personally, she is my wife. I paid the bride price for her, and Saul betrayed me by giving her to another man. She is not legitimately married to that man. She's still married to me. So this is a part, this is an aspect of David's stature, David's reputation, and that David still has a covenant agreement with this woman. And she is my wife. So you want to have an agreement with me? You want to sign a covenant with me? You want to create the loyalty and link between the 10 tribes of the north and me? One price, bring Michelle with you. I want my wife back. Now, back to Fred's question earlier about Rispa, the concubine of Saul. Women have no say in this, as you're going to see. At one level, it's a terrible thing, because they're going to take her from the man that she's lived with now for years and give her back to David. And you'll see she will resent David the rest of her life. But we'll get to that. Now look back at the text now. Then David sent them, verse 14, and David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michelle, for I paid the bride price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. If you go back to chapter 18, that was the price that Saul had set, remember? Hoping that those Philistines would kill David, but they didn't. He was successful. And so, so Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Patael, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping her after her all the way to Baharim. And Abner said to him, go return. And he returned. Just such a, a lovely picture of domestic bliss, isn't it? It's horrible. But it goes all the way back to what Saul did. This mess was created by Saul, not David. Because they were married, and she hid David from those messengers that Saul had sent to kill him. Remember, she put a little mat in the bed and a fake pillow. Remember that? And, and, and when the guys came in, oh, he's sleeping. He, he, he'll come later. So they waited and went back, and they found this was all ruse. By this time, David's run away. He's escaped. And so what Saul did was he punished her and gave her to another man. She gets it, David, you've lost your wife, and gets her. And so she now has kind of fallen in love with this guy, and now she's back with David. It's so exciting, isn't it? These were great creation ordinance marriages, you know, monogamous, heterosexual for life. That is not how we're finding. We just see the consequences of this. Then Abner conferred with the elders of Israel. Now, again, that little phrase, the elders of Israel. These would be the tribe and clan leaders of all the northern tribes, ten of them. So he's got, I don't know how he did it, I don't know where he did it, but he's collected them together. For some time past, you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all the enemies. So, I mean, this is a remarkable turn. But because of what Isbosheth had done in challenging Abner, Abner's now switching loyalty to David, and he is the intermediary to cultivate the loyalty of the ten tribes. Abner also spoke, verse 19, to Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. And Abner went to tell David at Hebron that all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David met a feast for Abner, and the men who were with him. Abner said to David, I'll rise and go, and will gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Now that last phrase, he went in peace, is extremely important, because it's shalom. What that means is, 
Everything is now settled between David and Abner. There's no conflict. There's no civil war. There's no, no issues. Everything is settled. Things are shalom between David, the king of Judah and Hebron, and Abner, the military commander of Ishbosheth, who's now delivered all of the ten tribes to David, including conversations with Benjamin, the eleventh tribe. So peace, shalom, has been established personally, David and Abner, as well as in the kingdom. Conceptually, there's now shalom in the kingdom. But there's one man who does not like what just happened. It's Joab, whose brother was killed by Abner. We read that last week. Remember that? Please tell me you remember that. Okay, two of you remember. We'll go back and look at chapter 2. Abner had killed Joab's brother as they were running after the battle of Gibeon, trying to catch Abner, and Abner stopped, remember, and killed his brother. So how is Joab going to react to this? Because Joab's out doing some military campaign for David. Verse 22, are you all with me? You, you tracking with me? Okay. Verse 22, just then David's servant, the servants of David arrived when Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone to peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told, Joab, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he's let him go, and he's gone to peace. And Joab went to the king and said, look at this. Look at the language. Look at the courage. Look at the audacity of Joab talking to the king. What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he's gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in, to know all you are doing. David, he's not here on a mission of peace. He's spying out the kingdom to see the vulnerability because he wants to attack. Now, that's not true as far as we know because of what happens in the subsequent chapter. But Abner, or Joab, you have to always remember this with Joab. Joab is an impulsive man, and Joab is a man who acts on those impulses. And the third thing is, he never, ever forgives. Joab will always seek revenge, and you're going to see that again and again and again in the remaining parts of this book. So, what is Joab going to do? Verse 26. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messenger after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah, but David did not know about it. Now, Sirah is about two and a half miles from Hebron. So Abner hasn't gone very far. David shared all this with Joab. Now Joab is going to act, and he clandestinely, secretly gets Abner to come back. From the, he's about two and a half miles away. So Abner returns to Hebron. Joab, I'm in the middle of verse 27. Joab took him aside in the midst of the gate. What gate? The gate into Hebron. Remember, every city had a wall around it. It was one gate which you entered the city. To speak with him privately. He probably put his arm around him, walked him away from the gate, over to a nice tree. And what does he do? He struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. This is an act of vengeance. And men, Hebron is a city of refuge. Do you remember those? Go back to Joshua. There were seven cities of refuge. 
The irony of that is significant. It meant nothing to Joab because he has one thing on his mind, blood vengeance. Well, wait a minute. It meant nothing, but he did it outside the gate. Yes, that's that's right. But the 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 symbolism of what he did outside of uh, Hebron, which is a Levitical city, or excuse me, a city of refuge. Right. It's it, it's just a connection there, Glenn. That oh, sure knew all that, and you are absolutely right. It's it's instructive that he takes him outside the gate, so that technically, as David is going to challenge him. Technically, I really didn't kill him in the city of refuge. It was right. just a few feet outside the city of refuge. Just no, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. But the irony of this is is point, uh, very very pointed. Even back then, they had reaction, I'm sorry. Even back then, they had lawyers. Yes. <laughs> After where I'm in verse 28. Now, when David heard it, he said, "I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord." For the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Man, this is really, really important. Because David is seeking to be a Deuteronomy 17 king, a shepherd king, who is not going to give support to this kind of stuff in his kingdom. Vengeance? is not the shepherd king's role. Justice is the shepherd king's role. And vengeance and justice are not the same thing. They're not synonyms. So I want you to note what David does now. Because, men, he must send a message, not only to Judah, but to all the tribes. I did not support this. I did not order this, and I want you to understand what I'm about to do as a symbol that my kingdom is not going to be associated with assassinations, blood vengeance, and murder. He was clear about that, and those opportunities he had to kill Saul in chapter 24 and 26 of 1 Samuel. Now he's doing the same thing here. So look what he does in verse 29. He issues a curse. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house, and may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or one who's leprous or holds a spindle or falls by the sword or who lacks bread. <laughs> David has just pronounced a curse on Joab and his family. Is that important for the kingdom to see that? Yes, the king does not support that. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother, Esau, to death at the Battle of Gibeon. What else does David do? Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes, put on sackcloth, mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. They buried Abner at Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and went at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. Now, man, why is he doing that? He is, as the king, he's publicly grieving, publicly mourning. And this is one of the few recorded funeral services in the Bible. We see the record here of a funeral service. You, normally, you don't see that in the Bible. But David is going out of his way to demonstrate his kingdom is going to be a kingdom of justice, not of vengeance. So he puts a curse on Joab's family, and he personally orders the leaders of the kingdom to mourn and grieve, and he personally leads the beer containing Abner's body, and he personally will make this incredible lamentation, which is verse 33 and 34. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands are not bound, your hands are not fettered. As one who falls before the wicked, you have fallen. You didn't die as an act of justice, a criminal whose hands were bound and feet were fettered. You were in jail and now you're getting your justice. That is not what happened to you. This was an unjust act of personal vengeance. As wicked, one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. Who's the wicked? Joab. 
I mean, this is an incredible symbolic act and series of statements by King David to his kingdom. You Honestly, you, you search the histories of the ancient world to see anything like this. You don't see it. I just finished reading a, a couple of weeks ago, A History of Assyria. It's a brand new book I saw when I was over in, we were over in England visiting. My son's fantastic book. It intersects so much with what the Bible says. But Assyria was a horrible kingdom. Horrible, horrible monarchy. Uh, ruler after ruler, assassination, murder after murder after murder. David says, we're not going to be like that. We're going to be a kingdom loyal to Yahweh Elohim, a kingdom of justice, not a kingdom of vengeance and murder. He's sending a powerful message to the kingdom. My monarchy is going to be different. And it's, it's, an, amazing, it's an amazing aspect of compassion and forgiveness uh, and, and, and justice from the king of Israel. Very, very significant. David is an amazing ruler. He knows exactly what to do to set the right tone of the kind of kingdom God wants him to build. And all the people wept again over him. And all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, go, God do so to me and more else if I taste bread, anything else till the sun goes down. So David is not only mourning, not only grieving, leading the beer containing Abner's body, giving a, a public lamentation. He's also fasting as a demonstration of grief. Look at verse 36. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all this were understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put Abner to death. Powerful. Very, very powerful. David is leading as a shepherd king. My kingdom will not be a kingdom of vengeance and murder. I did not order this, nor did I approve of it. And the king said to his servant, Do you not know that the prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, men of Zeruiah, A, that's Joab and his brother, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. What did David just say? I am not going to take vengeance on Joab. Who will? What did he just say? Who will? Yahweh will. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. I am leaving Joab's fate up to the Lord. David's kingdom is just starting. He's just starting to rule. How did he know what his fate would be? Solomon will order his, his execution. After David dies, Solomon ordered Joab's execution. Did he then serve David? Joab? Yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. He will be, we'll read about that. We won't get to that this week, but we'll read about that next week. He will be the one that will lead David's armies to capture Jerusalem from the Jebusites, Canaanite tribe. Joab is going to serve David. But David has made the decision, I'm not going to take care of Joab. God's going to. This is, this, this is, the, the justice of the Bible is tallying. You've heard me say that many times. The justice of the Bible is tallying justice. But David is leaving the tallying justice in the hands of Yahweh. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to murder Joab. I'm going to leave the Lord to take care of Joab. All right. This is a very important chapter. I, I, I spent, you know, a good, we still have about 20 minutes left, but I, I wanted to really drive home the importance of what's going on in chapter three. Did I succeed? Okay. How David is reacting to a very difficult situation. But it's, it's amazing what he's trying to model. And as we read there in 36 and 37, the people of Israel really approved of what David's doing. And any, any, these would be the tribal leaders of the clan. This isn't necessarily every single citizen of all the tribes. But they're sensing something's different here. That's not how Saul would have acted. 
That's not how Saul would have done it. David is doing something different. This pleases them. We're not going to have a blood-soaked kingdom. Not have a kingdom of vengeance. We're going to have a kingdom of justice. Independence of Yahweh Elohim, our covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And our king is leading in that. That's refreshing. Again, it's in the context of the ancient Near Eastern world, not, not necessarily ours, but when you, I, I hope I was successful in giving you a little bit of a context for that. It's really quite amazing. Now, we have to do something else here. We have to get something else settled. Because in the background, it's still like, well, what about Ismashev? He's still up there in Mahanaim. He still thinks he's king of the north. Even though what Abner's done, and Abner's now dead. So let's see what happens. Are you ready? You're sitting on the edge of your seat. You can't wait, right, to hear. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner was dead and had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all of Israel was dismayed. That would be the north. Now, Saul's son had two men who were captain of raiding bands. These are not nice guys. They had been loyal to Saul. They're of the tribe of Benjamin. One's name was Bahana. The other's name was Rechab, sons of Ramon, man, a man of Benjamin, from B. Roth. B. Roth is counted a part of Benjamin. The Benjamites flee to Gatim. It's just telling you they were part of Benjamin. All right. Verse 4. We go on a short bunny trail. And I'll tell you why when we get to the next chapter. This is, remember I mentioned this earlier, this is one of these walk-ons. It's like, what is he telling us this for? Because once you get a, a name that you got to keep in your mind. So now it's a bunny trail. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, meaning when they were killed on Mount Gilboa. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. This is like a parenthesis. It's like a bunny trail. What's it telling us? There's one surviving relative of Jonathan. It's a son, a crippled son. And he's crippled because his nurse, who was caring for him, when the news that Jonathan, his father, and Saul were dead, she ran out, she dropped him, he's crippled. Now back to the story. Back to what happened to Ishbosheth at the hands of these two, two Benjamite raiders. They're really assassins. Because David made a promise to Jonathan. I will take care of any of your surviving relatives. Because in the ancient Near Eastern world, what did you do with the surviving relatives of your predecessor? You killed them. Everybody expected that. It was normal, but not in David's kingdom. So what we're going to see, and it, I don't know why the author interjected this here. It, it doesn't go to the flow of the chapter. But he just tells us there is a surviving relative of Jonathan. It's his son, who, by the way, is crippled. Now back to the main story, verse 5. Now the sons of Ramon, the Bariathite, Rechab, and Baana set out in about the heat of the day, that would be, you know, afternoon when it's really starting to get hot. They came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. As he was taking his noonday rest, and they came into the midst of the house as if to go get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. So Rishab and Baana are assassins. They're assassins from the tribe of Benjamin. They're assassins who led raiding bands for King Saul. Who ordered this? David didn't. Who, who, who developed this assassination plot? The Bible does not tell us. So the inference seems to be that the leaders of the tribe of Benjamin, who because David had brought Michelle, Saul's daughter, back to Hebron, 
She was from the tribe of Benjamin. And because of what Abner had done in cultivating the loyalty of the tribe of Benjamin, we read about that in the previous chapter, they're now loyal to David. And their loyalty to David means they've got to get rid of Ishbosheth. So presumably, the tribal leaders of Benjamin ordered the assassination. They used two of these assassins from Saul's kingdom to pull it off. Now, what do they do? Look at verse 7. And they came into the house as he lay on his bed in his bedroom. They struck him, put him to death, and beheaded him. These are lovely men, aren't they? Then they took his head and went by the way of Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. What that means is Mahanim is up here on the east side of the Jordan. They go down south near the Dead Sea and cut up to Hebron. That's just a geography of what they did. So they're bringing Ishbosheth's head to David. Why would they bring the head? To prove he's dead. <laughs> Here's his head. <laughs> Prove he's dead. Again, this is a very typical thing to do in the ancient history world. This is typical. This is nothing unusual. But it's unusual in David's kingdom. You'll see how David reacts to this. And they said to the king, here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day on Saul and all his offspring. Why do you think these guys um, brought the head of Ishbosheth to David and said what they just said? Saul, your enemy, who sought your life? The Lord's avenged, my Lord. And, and, uh, what do you think they want? A reward. A reward. They want him to cut a big check for all that they did for him. We've gotten away your rival. We've eliminated your rival. But remember, you've seen this theme now. You saw it when that Amalekite brought Saul's crown and Saul's armband to David. What did David order that that man be executed? What did David do? He put a curse on Joab for killing Abner. What is David going to do to these Benjamite assassins? Verse 9, but David answered Rechab and Ba'ana, his brother, sons of Ramon, the Periathite, as Yahweh lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them, cut off their hands and feet, hanged them beside the pool of Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. This is Talionic justice. A life for a life. You murdered a king. Yes, he was my rival, but you murdered the king. That was not an act of justice. My kingdom is a kingdom of justice. We follow the talionic justice of the Bible, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, the law of retribution. You have sealed your own fate, and he had them executed. And it's gruesome, men. I know it's gruesome, but he hung their bodies with their limbs cut off as a public display. This is what happened to those who violate the standards of God's justice. Again, this is gruesome. This is the culture of the ancient Near Eastern world. But David, again, is making a statement. He will not approve of assassination as a means of gaining political power. And the people would see this and follow this because of other attributes. That this was God's retribution. He was a man of God. That's right. That's right. I mean, he is, and that's, I'm trying to, and I, I think I'm succeeding by your question. I'm trying to get you to rise above some of this and understand how is this being perceived and understood in the ancient world. He is a very different king. 
Because in all other kingdoms of the ancient world at this time, they would approve. They totally understand. Well, that makes sense. And they'd have cut these guys big checks of reward for what they had done. But that's not how David's looking at it. This possession in God's hands. He's rebelling against God's kingdom. God will take care of him. But you killed him. You murdered him. It's an act of assassination, thinking that's what I want. That's not what I ordered you to do. I didn't want you to do it. I will not give you favor for doing it. And he has him executed. My kingdom is a kingdom that follows the Italianic justice of God, not vengeance, not murder, not assassination. I remember in uh, World War II, as it was wrapping up, Mussolini and his wife were hung uh, out for the public to see uh, as, as Italy had. Uh, yeah, it was in Milan there on a pole, yeah. yeah. I guess that's fairly graphic and deep in this place when see They're saying a very powerful message there, too. Uh, he was an illegitimate ruler of wartime Italy, and now he's done. Yeah. All right. Now, I really, in chapter three and chapter four, I tried to stress not only what was happening, but why David is doing what he's doing. And what he's trying to establish in the eyes of the people of Israel, my kingdom is going to be a different kingdom. And I think, for the most part, I think the people are getting the message that David is going to be a very different king. All right, now, um, are there any questions? Any, is it online? Everybody with me? I didn't lose any of you, did I? We're with you. Woody, did you have a question? No, I just wanted to say we're with you. Oh, great. Thank you. Fred? So in, uh, in verse 12, when he cut off their hands and their feet, cut by cutting off the hands so they're unable to, to use their hands to, to commit assassination. Well, I think so. It's, yeah, it's, a, it's a symbolic. And feet so they can't travel around. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and hang their bodies at a public display. I mean, it's a, I mean, it's gruesome in the way we think of things, but it's symbolically very, very important. And, and the people would, would see that or, or, or hear about it, of course, as it was passed through. All right. Now, uh, we have about 10 minutes. I think we can, I think we can get to where I want to get. And then next week, we'll, we'll develop what happens with Jerusalem. But notice the beginning, really the first five verses now of chapter five. We're at a very, very important marker in David's kingdom. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. Now, remember, there are 12 tribes. <laughs> so, and, and this, this doesn't mean that every single Israelite comes to Hebron. It would mean the tribal leaders the clan leaders, the elders, and probably the Levites. There may have been some others, but it's the leadership. Behold, we are your bone and flesh. Now that's kind of an odd statement for these people to make. What do they mean by that? The same mind. Well, maybe. I mean, same when you say lineage, they're, they're Jews. They're all descendants of Abraham. We're all descendants of Abraham. And it, it's a way of, it's a way, it's, it's, it's covenant language. We are all, you know, I'll use language that you see a little bit later on. We're all the chosen people. Now, it's taken us a long time. It's been seven and a half years. Since David, since Saul was died, had died, and, and David was king in, in, in Hebron, but they, they're now recognizing these probably Benjamin is already loyal to David, but these are the, at least the other ten tribes, and maybe even Benjamin. But these are all the tribes. They're finally recognizing what Judah recognized seven and a half years ago. You are the king. The covenant promises God made to you are real, and we acknowledge that. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. 
And the Lord, notice it's Yahweh there, verse 3, verse 2. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So, I mean, notice that language. They're using the language of Deuteronomy 17. They're using the language of how God viewed the king as a shepherd. Man, no other king in the ancient Near Eastern world would you use the metaphorical description of a king as a shepherd. But in Israel you do. Because the king is to shepherd his people as a shepherd leads and shepherds his sheep to nurture them and care for them and teach them, etc. That's what the king is supposed to do. That's the language of Deuteronomy 17. And shall be prince, and that would be the, the political, the politically, but notice shepherd precedes prince. So the king, and that's, it's amazing that they're using that language as they acknowledge. And so therefore in verse 3, so all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David is 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. Seven years in Hebron, and about 33, roughly 33 years in Jerusalem, a total of 40 years. This is the golden age of Israel. It's 1004, 1004 B.C. There's very little doubt about that date, pretty certain. So it's roughly 3,000 years ago. David was anointed king over all the 12 tribes. He reigns in Hebron seven, seven years and six months. He reigns in Jerusalem 33 years. Now, that's a statement of fact. But when they came down to Hebron and anointed David king over all the 12 tribes, they didn't own Jerusalem yet. Jerusalem is in the hands of a Canaanite tribe called the Jebusites. And that's what the rest of this chapter is all about. Now, in your, um, and again, I don't know if you have this with you, or maybe just think about it to look at it or whatever. But when you when you understand where Jerusalem is, at this time it's called Jebus, J-E-B-U-S. It's in the mountains of Judah. It's 2,500 feet above sea level. It is a fortress. Now, can we talk, oh, as if, well, let's talk about the importance of, of Jerusalem in history. This is not the first time that we hear about this city. Where do you first hear about it? In Genesis 14, when we meet Melchizedek. Do you remember him? Melchizedek was the king of Salem. Salem is Jerusalem. And he was high priest. And that's the amazing, remember, that's what's really important about Melchizedek because the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which I don't want to talk about right now. But Jerusalem is a very old city. It goes back to the time of Abraham, and Melchizedek was the king of this city. And that was the way things were at that time, as you know. And, and, and Melchizedek was a loyal loyal, devout follower of the true God. He was a contemporary of Abraham, as you know. At that time, when Melchizedek ruled Jerusalem, it didn't have a wall around it. So high, it was like a fortress city. Then, about 1850 B.C., it was captured by the Jebusites, a Canaanite tribe. So when Melchizedek ruled it, it was peaceful. Melchizedek was loyal to the one true God. He, he, was, uh, he became a friend of Abraham, all that stuff you see in Genesis 14. About 250 years later, 1850 B.C., the Jebusites took this city and they built a big wall around it. 
And now it becomes an impregnable, walled, fortified city. If you, I don't know if you want to do this, I encourage you maybe to bring it uh, to class next week. But on page 13 of your notes, I give you, I gave you a copy of what Jerusalem looked like at the time of David, which we're just now studying. And I, and those of you online, make, make sure next week you get, have with you page 13 of your notes. But there is a picture now. This is Jerusalem. And you can see, it's not, it's not very big, but there's a big, thick wall. It says 2,500 feet above sea level, already a natural fortress. And you've got a thick, big wall around. Plus, there's something else. Right here on the eastern side, right where my index finger is, is the, is the, the, the spring of Gihon. And what that means is they tapped into that spring so that this city could endure a very, very, very long siege. Why? Because it had a source of water. So if David is going to take Jerusalem, somehow, somehow he has got to be able to break through this already well-fortified, high 2,500 feet above sea level city with a big, thick, high wall around it, plus they have the security of an internal source of water. That's no small task. So if you want to know how David takes Jerusalem, you got to come back next week. It's an incredible story. And I've been there many, many, many times. And when you're there and you see how they took this city, it's an amazing feat. And I can't wait for next week to go through the story. It's an amazing story. Do not forget to bring this map or somehow have access to it or whatever you do. It, it just will help you understand uh, the geography of this and what David, really Joab does it, who is ordered by David to take it. It's an amazing story. It really is. It's really cool. So it's, we're at a, a, a crucial turning point in David's, David's kingdom. All the tribes have now acknowledged him as king, uh, gave loyalty to him, they've agreed to a covenant, and they've crowned him king. And it begins this amazing golden age rule of David. But he shrewdly makes the decision, I can't stay in Hebron. I've got to establish a neutral capital. Because where was Hebron? It was in Judah. And if he wants the other 10 or 11 tribes, he's got to have a capital somewhere else. So we'll talk about that next week. Isn't this sort of exciting? No, we don't get excited about biblical truth around here, but every now and then it gets exciting to look at this stuff. So Did you? I hope you're with me this, this class. There was a lot I wanted to try to get across, not only the events, but why David is trying to do something different in terms of the kings of the ancient world. So anyway, I'm going to pray, and I've got to go, and you do too. Lord, you promised David when he was 15 years old that he would be the king. Samuel anointed him. And uh, 15 years later, Saul is uh, killed on Mount Gilboa, and David is about to become king. And he consolidates his rule in Hebron, but the other tribes aren't loyal. We just read how step by step by step, the loyalty of the rest of the tribes is now directed toward David. They recognize him, they defer to him, they crown him, they anoint him as the king. Now he has to shrewdly cultivate the loyalty of all of these tribes. He must bind them together. He must make a capital city. He must make a religious center. And that's what he's going to do. It's powerful. It's significant how he's strategically working toward building unity in this very diverse, very divided kingdom. Lord, you were with him. You gave him the insight and the wisdom on how to do this. Lord, what is really, really important is because David, in the golden age of Israel's history, Jesus will come from the line of David. In Revelation chapter 5, Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. So what we're reading about here is really setting the stage for what the real Messiah of Israel, their anointed king, their, their savior, he will come a thousand years later in Jerusalem to accomplish his sacrifice for not only the Jewish people, but for all people. 
That's what his death, burial, and resurrection is all about. We're reading material and studying material that is extremely important in understanding why Jesus comes on the scene a thousand years later. So dismiss us with your blessing today, Lord. Help us to be the men of God, strong men of faith you're calling us to be. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. See you next week.